Hunting Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Whether it's a brilliant movie and whether it's good history. Well, yes and no. I, th I think they're related. I don't think they're entirely unrelated. Excuse questions. me, Sandy. Can we interact among the panel? Absolutely. Yeah, sure. uh, By all means. And, but I, I, I was coming to Steve Rosenfeld, but go ahead, Dan. Well, I just simply want to say when you buy a book, uh, you know whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Uh, when you go to see a movie, you just don't know. And I'm Stone labels this movie as being dependent on two books, Garrison's and another fellow, uh, what's his name, Mars? And, uh, and he attempts to portray it as nonfiction. And this is. Excuse me. Um, this is an interpretation. He, he portrays this as being an interpretation of a true story, but he's sort of blurred the distinction. And I also think that that's one reason why Stone's getting a lot of grief right now, but he's also getting a lot of grief because he has used Jim Garrison as his motif for this movie himself. Once again, Jim Garrison, the evidence is clear, uh, was in the pocket of the New Orleans crime syndicate that is never portrayed in the film itself. The one thing that Lee Harvey Oswald, Jack Ruby, David Ferry, and Jim Garrison had in common was their connection to the Marcello crime organization. Once again, Marcello's investigation, and it's been pr repeatedly proven, was a deflection away from the investigation of the mafia where the most credible evidence currently exists. That's the reason why, Gar why Oliver Stone is taking as much grief as he's taken because the movie simply lacks integrity. Excuse me, may I say something? Go ahead, uh, I think one of the reasons why the Warren Commission, the documents, we don't hold a great deal of hope for that is because the FBI was the lead investigative agency in the Warren Commission uh, investigation. J. Edgar Hoover had basically denied the fact that organized crime had existed for years. Uh, to all intents and purposes, he didn't have the bureaucracy in place within the Bureau to handle organized crime investigations. And secondly, Alan Dulles, who was the uh, was the creator of the CIA mafia plots to assassinate Fidel Castro, never brought these plots up before the, the commission itself. It's difficult for me to believe that had the CIA mafia plots to assassinate Fidel Castro been brought up before the Warren Commission, that that would not have created a whole new avenue of investigation for the commission itself. Dan, in a, in a sense, the theory that you support, that you believe in, uh, is dealt a setback by this film. The, the, certainly there appear to be, uh, this is not by any means a random sample of people who've turned out tonight for this forum, but there, there appear to, this film seems to have evoked a very positive response from a lot of people, and particularly young people. Uh, how do you go about challenging its view with your view? With the evidence as I stated earlier in the program. The evidence is clear about this. I, I don't preclude other people being involved in this thing, but right now we have adequate evidence, enough, I believe, to haul in the court. I think that the situation is one in which we have to evaluate the evidence. We have a witness who has now confessed to being a principal in all of this. He is willing to testify under oath before Congress. I think that all of us should support his right to testify before Congress and then follow the evidence wherever it goes. If it goes into Mr. Prouty's uh, uh, Vietnam scenario, fine. If it goes into John Judge and all of the, all of the things he believes, 
fine. I just think that the investigation has to start someplace. Those of us who've investigated organized crime's involvement in all of this have put together a roadmap for this, and I think it's simply a matter of following this credible evidence that and, has already and, been established. And who should do it? Uh, I think Pat Dell might say, if you want to get the theory well accepted, well, you that's, have that's the thing that's really troubling right it. now. We have Frank Regano, who said he's willing to testify and willing to make a statement, the Justice Department has not grabbed him yet. Had I been the director of the FBI, I would be down there sealing him up. No co congressional committee has grabbed him yet to get his deposition, so we've been trying to negotiate with the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations of the United States Senate to at least take his deposition in uh, executive session before he gets clipped, which I think is a real danger. Remember Johnny Roselli, remember Sam Giancana, before they had a chance to tell their story about this matter, they were whacked out. Uh, in very horrible ways. And I don't want to see this happening to Frank Regano. I was talking to Frank today, and Frank is terrified right now because nobody is coming to him to take his deposition. Thank you, Jeff. Well, I do think that's what makes the movie so convulsive. Uh, for us is that it suggests that no, we can't believe anything, and that's a very uncertain, obviously, place to be. Um, it, what's not so clear, and what Stone doesn't really have to, anything more to say to us, you know, to help us as an artist, is when at the end when Kevin Kofner, Costner lifts his eyes to the camera and says, it's up to you. It's not so clear that we're up to it, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, that really is, that really is what's left to us, I think. Uh, any, any other thoughts on that? What can we believe? Colonel Prouty, what can we believe? It's an interesting discussion. I'm absolutely astounded by the development of it. Whenever you run a clandestine operation, you run two things at the same time. You prepare the team for the hit, and you keep it so small there's nobody to spread it all around. And across the hall is a big staff working on what we call special plans. I've got a book from the Pentagon here, and I can show you. They're preparing the cover story. The cover story is what they want people to believe and to talk about and to argue about and everything. That's what the Warren Commission report is. It's the cover story. Can't we understand? What's the matter with us? If somebody took money out of our bank account, we'd figure it out quicker than this. You know? And this is regular. When I, when I came into the Pentagon in 1955 and we started this work, across the hall from me, I was special operations, clandestine operations, was a cover story office. When I went down to the Joint Chiefs of Staff to set up the same machinery for all services in the military, what was the hall, office across from me? Special plans, setting up cover story. When two or three mechanics, hitmen from Murder Incorporated, killed Kennedy in Dallas, the rest of the whole story is a cover story. You ever hear of the Mongoose program? It costs $50 million a year to set it up and provide these kind of people. Now, the camp for these people is not in the United States. We wouldn't do that. There was a major general working with me in the Defense Department. He came back one day from the White House. He said, Proudy, go get me my retirement papers right now. I said, what's the matter? He said, those bastards in the White House are going to kill that man. He said he's one of the finest anti-communist leaders we've been working with. They're going to kill him. And they did. The next day, they assassinated the leader of a country. I mean, these things happen. Don't we know what's going on? 
Well, I think people do recognize that the Warren Commission is a cover story. Our problem now is that everything is a cover story. You know, who elected Ronald Reagan? How did George Bush get to be president? How did the hostages get free? You know, how, how did uh, Iran, you know, how do, how do our, uh, our allies shift from day to day depending on, uh, you know, uh, who we're running guns to? Everything's a cover story on the nightly news now. Well, that gives you where did my bank go, you know? Uh, where did, uh, what SNL failed? Uh, why can't I buy a decent airline ticket? Everything's a cover story now. That's our problem. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Could I address the cover story issue? I, I want to ask Go you, ahead, Dan. Mr. Prouty, I'm just out of wild curiosity. You're talking about the cover story. In 1979, the House Select Committee on Assassinations said that there was a probable conspiracy in the John Kennedy murder and that it was probably arranged by organized crime. Are you saying that Louis Stokes and Robert Blakey, the chief counsel of the committee, we're putting, putting together a cover story for the American public? Read it. <laughs> you believe all of You're it? saying these men of, of impeccable credentials and reputation have put out nothing more than a cover story to the American public. The hardest work is to prepare the cover story. And, it, and look how good it is. It, would prepare, it, was, it was publishing 26 volumes, you know, the Warren Commission now, 26 volumes. In 1964, it came, became public. And those 26 volumes have been living up to today. We still have to argue whether it's true or not. And it is being perfected from day to day because it keeps up with what's happening. There's a, there's a power keeping So now it Louis going. Stokes and Robert Blakey and the members of the committee are now part of your, your conspiracy then. Is that basically what you're saying? That they are now a part of this cover story? Well, because the, that'll tell, if you answer that yes, that's going to tell me a lot about everything else you've been saying about this. For, for instance, how did it happen that the first writers to find fault with Oliver Stone's film, before he had put it in the theater, before he had finished the script, they worked on the first copy of the script before they even waited for the seventh copy of the script, how did it happen that the people that wrote that generally write what they call a national security column or something like that, and all of a sudden they became movie critics before the movie was even in a theater? Are we kidding ourselves? How many times do we have to say uh, a George Lardner that I used to work with when I was in the Pentagon is writing about this film, what was it, two months, three months before it came out? A pack of lies is what he wrote. Now, George Lardner's not dumb. Where does the power come from that requires a man like that with a great record to do something like that? So you're saying George Lardner's smear. part of the cover Where does too. the power come from to make a man? Where does the power come from to make a man like Earl Warren, a Chief Justice of the United States, sign his name to the Warren Commission report? Colonel Prouty. Uh, I, I used to work with George Lardner. Steve Rosenfeld still does. And he's not here tonight to defend himself. We asked him to be, and he, he chose not to be uh, on this panel. But I. I, uh, I, I don't know that we want to accept as fact that George Lardner has written a pack of lies about well, this. Uh, his, his article, not George. I've known George for years. He okay, called well. me before I write the story, and he wanted to know if I had any information on NSAM 263 because he heard it was going to be in the movie and he wanted to know about it. That thing has been available in books 
since 1963, and he wanted to know something well, about it. The point it. is that George Lardner does not write about national security. Not that he does write about national security, but that he doesn't, and that's why he called you to ask you about that yeah. document. If he wrote and about then, national security, he wouldn't have needed to call you. And, and ask then, that. in place of that, the article that he wrote is just loaded with things that are not true. Now, why did he do that? Are, I mean, are you he saying that he's part of the cover story, too? Are you saying he's yeah. part of the cover story, too, then? I mean, you've just defamed three people here. Lewis Stokes, Robert Blakey, the chief counsel of the Assassinations Committee, George Lardner, one of the finest reporters in the country, and you're saying they are all now part of this cover story, which is consistent with what you were saying in the movie, the Mr. X thing in the movie, that all of these people are part of this grand cover-up, and all of these people are part of this conspiracy against the President of the United States. I view this as being demagoguery of the worst degree. And I think that's what you're trying to portray here. You guys are grabbing at everything, taking the big pretext, and then coming down and taking any shred of evidence, regardless of the, its lack of merit, its sourcing, and you're applying it to this ridiculous conspiracy theory that the government of the United States arranged and executed, executed the murder of the president. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 154. Before we get started on the episode, I have to take you on what I believe to be a very relevant wander. One of the principal authors that I have been reading about the Garrison case states that Oliver Stone was a twice-wounded Vietnam veteran. I assume that's true. I, I didn't look it up or verify that. But this same writer has also written and criticized Stone and has characterized Garrison's investigation itself as a personal Rosetta Stone for Oliver Stone. I guess what she means is that it's a way for him to personally make sense of his own Vietnam War experiences and to try and reconcile in his own mind all the complexities of that war. This was expressed in not exactly the same words by Patricia Lambert, who is the author of False Witness. I don't believe Stone ever made a statement that ties his own Vietnam War experience and tragedy to his own theories about why the JFK assassination happened, as if the film is some twisted Freudian exercise for Stone to make sense of the entirety of his own personal war tragedy. I might be wrong, I might be misinterpreting all of this, but certainly being a veteran of the Vietnam War gives him a true source of experience to draw from and that probably shaped his views on the topic. But what is wrong with that? And there is no great need for a Freudian analysis here of Stone's intentions. Lambert's general premise that Oliver Stone made some pretty big leaps of faith in his own JFK movie without backing it up, well, how ironic, because she does exactly the same thing in her own book, at least on this one big point for sure, and many other smaller points. Lambert was doing criticizes Stone for, yet you are supposed to take her on her word, and not to take Stone on his word. Take her as completely factual, but not take Stone as completely factual. Is it art, or is it history? Is it fact, or is it fiction? One or the other. One right, one wrong. <laughs> Well, I'm scratching my head because I wish it were that simple in this case. And let's be clear here. I'm not taking sides and I'm not trashing her work or Stone's. 
Regarding Lambert's book, it's a fine work. I think it may very well be the definitive source that currently exists on the Garrison investigation. She wasn't there at the time, and so she can't quite write it the way James Kirkwood writes in American Grotesque, but she's done a great deal of work to try to get the facts right. Much of what she states in her book, False Witness, is factual, but in my opinion, it also contains many leaps of faith, just like Stone's work. So there, neither pure fact or pure fiction. And this theme continues with other authors, including Vincent Bugliosi. And let me be the first to say that it doesn't matter how many footnotes or technical sightings you have in your scholarly work, a wrong premise is a wrong premise. A fictional account is a fictional account. His, too, is a prodigious work, much of it very factual, but it, too, has its distortions. For example, in Bugliosi's Reclaiming History, he acknowledges the fact that years after the Garrison investigation, a very clear and convincing photograph surfaced that showed David Ferry and a young Lee Harvey Oswald together at some sort of a cookout or event that was deemed to be a Civil Air Patrol gathering that included a small group of young men. This photograph blew a complete hole in the long-standing theory that lone gunman enthusiasts maintain, that these two men had no association whatsoever. Well, the photograph showed a young Oswald smiling and obviously having a good time with the group. And David Ferry is right there in the picture. The picture shows all of this. There can be no dispute about that. The picture shows that it was a special moment in time that was completely captured on film at the moment that picture was taken. Most of you listening to this podcast have likely seen this photograph that I am referring to. Again, this group of young men were essentially standing around each other, clearly there in a small group, and Oswald appeared animated in the photograph with a big smile on his face, as if he was truly engaged and enjoying the moment. But Bugliosi made it a point in reclaiming history to minimize the photo's importance. How? Well, Bugliosi starts by acknowledging the existence of the photograph, which is a required exercise to first gain credibility with the reader. But then, to indicate that this particular photograph did not prove that David Ferry knew Oswald. Well, on, on what premise did Bugliosi state this? Well, he says, essentially, that is the case because they were not standing near enough to one another in the photo. My God, what a statement. Anyone looking at that picture would just chuckle because it would insult your intelligence to hear such a thing. It is exactly the kind of nuanced writing that appears in all of these publications. Writings whose intention, at least in this particular example, is to clearly undermine the idea that these two men, Ferry and Oswald, had any connection whatsoever. Now, mind you, a picture that shows the two together in the Civil Air Patrol doesn't mean that they conspired to commit any crime together, let alone a crime to kill the president. So, on that front, Bugliosi is right on. Except that Bugliosi, in this case, takes it a step further using a reasonable supposition to hammer home a very unreasonable supposition. Cleverly done, Vincent Bugliosi. You see, you need a trained eye to see it. But to a trained eye, Bugliosi on this topic and others on their own stumbles 
does nothing more than perhaps unwittingly reduce the credibility of his own work. Exactly what happens when one engages in the obvious and subtle deceptions that are done in this way and contained in these writings. Subjectivity, you say? Perhaps, but I doubt it. I can't prove that Bugliosi is truly incorrect in his assumption here, and that's the beauty of what he did. But anyone looking at that photograph and coming to their own independent conclusions is likely to conclude differently. I truly believe that. And so, of course, it's easy for me to look at that photograph and conclude that Ferry and Oswald knew each other. And yes, of course, the photograph is fortifying to the idea that there was indeed a connection, at least years back, between Oswald and Ferry. And yes, even though I am saying this, it's still plausible at the same time to have it be true that there is little or no evidence to confirm that these two men may have conspired. So for me, that means that Bugliosi does have a very valid argument on that point. But Bugliosi does not have an argument that these two men did not know each other. And I believe he knew it. But he pushed the envelope here. And these types of writings insult our intelligence when researchers with biases write things in this very subtle but powerful way. Why am I harping on this? Well, I'm harping on this because these are landmines in the historical record. That's what makes this so difficult to tell the garrison story, because one sentence in any of these writings seems to be right on. But then the next sentence could be a complete absurdity, given all that you know. And it's all within the same body of work. It's tough sledding for a reader with a trained eye, and even tougher sledding for someone with less of a trained eye. I am, probably self-proclaimed, somewhere in the middle of that range. What a ball of twine that we have here. And it wasn't only Garrison that was giving us a ball of twine. It was everybody who was writing about Garrison as well. In short, obvious biases everywhere. And by the way, going both ways. Sometimes trying to cancel out the conspiracy theorists. Sometimes trying to cancel out the lone gunman folks. You get my point. Don't be too quick to judge anything in this space. Keep a keen eye and ear out. Oh, and here is the genesis of this wander, by the way. And the point I made is not what set me off, <laughs> if you can believe it. You see, I am a little perturbed. You might be able to tell that by the tone of this episode so far. Last night, I watched a YouTube video and listened carefully to a C-SPAN production which featured a panel discussion on the JFK assassination. It was recorded back in 1992 at American University in Washington, D.C., more than 30 years ago now. And it was organized as a result of the Oliver Stone film that had just come out. It had a panel of perhaps six or seven participants, including Congressman Henry Gonzalez, the independent and well-known journalist Dan Mulday, along with Colonel Fletcher Prouty and John Judge, among others. Gonzalez was in the motorcade that day and was involved early on in the formation of the HSCA. Although watching a little bit of this video where he speaks will reinforce why politicians never seem to be able to get anything done. The highlight of the evening occurred when Mulday went after Colonel Prouty, and it was ugly on Mulday's part. Mulday being a proponent of the mafia did it theory, 
and absolutely trying to assassinate the storyline related to Fletcher Prouty's made-up character in the JFK movie, the character that nailed down CIA involvement or the idea of a government cover-up. Of course, that flag in the panel discussion was carried by Fletcher Prouty. And by the way, while the character was fictionalized, Prouty explains that the dialogue carried on by that character is actually embodied in a series of government documents. It's not made up. And he brought a folder full of those documents to the panel discussion, at least for effect and possible reference, which never happened. And whatever you think of Prouty, his writings, his books, his statements about the assassination, the fact is, he is infinitely more qualified to speak on some of the covert operations topics than any of the other members of that panel. He was indisputably in the thick of much of it. Yet, instead of treating him with some deference or respect, people who were never there, like Mulday, torpedoed him. I believe there is a long preamble history as to why, and no need to try to dive into that here. And you heard a more benign part of that torpedo clip. Not all of it, though, mind you, at the beginning of this episode. And in that clip, there is one point relevant to our current series that you heard on the lead-in, that Mulday believes that Garrison was in the pocket of organized crime. The Garrison was in the pocket of Carlos Marcello. And that is why Garrison dreamed up the whole CIA involvement theme, essentially implying that it was a deception. And Mulday claims that the Garrison case and investigation was a sham because of it. That is a topic we must explore before this series of episodes concludes. The panel discussion was a true microcosm of the divisions in the country at that moment. Still, you have to understand always what is going on underneath the covers on the topic of the JFK assassination. (laughs) Well, and anything for that matter. For example, if you know the rest of Mulday's journey in life, his quest to find an answer to the Jimmy Hoffa story, you can better understand his disposition at that moment on the 1992 JFK panel discussion. He is over 70 years old now, and he is, last I checked, still going strong, and perhaps the resident world expert on the death of Jimmy Hoffa. He wrote about it. Heck, he made a career out of it. He studied it in some respects his entire life, and so the narrative for his own sake at that moment had to be in line with the idea that the mob killed JFK, because the mob killed Hoffa too, based on his analysis. And after all, that was the theory that was closest in line with the HSCA conclusions in 1978, that the mob killed JFK. He proclaims himself as a man that bases his conclusions solely on the facts and not conjecture. But the question is, did he truly look at all the relevant facts in this case? I'll let you be the judge on whether he or others like him got it right from that angle. Mulday's personality, although softer today than it was in that recorded session of 1992, told De Niro that he had been conned when De Niro made the movie The Irishman, clearly telling De Niro that he knew that Frank Sheerhan, the Irishman that is the namesake of the movie, did not kill Jimmy Hoffa. De Niro steadfastly held his ground, that he believed otherwise. While Mulday classifies it still as a hit by the mob, in his opinion, it was not Sheerhan. And he's probably right. The discussion that night that he himself 
characterized as ending in a very unfriendly way with De Niro. And don't get me wrong, Dan Mulday is a world-class investigative reporter. After all, he is the resident world expert on Hoffa. And the book they used to make the movie, though, was not his. That 1992 panel was really something to watch, and it wasn't because it was packed with a particularly erudite group of people when it came to JFK assassination facts. Here were some of the most influential folks at the time, at least regarding how the JFK assassination topic was being served up to the American people. There was no reconciliation of views here. It almost becomes personal. You really feel like it is when you listen to this discussion. As if a person like Molday himself, an independent reporter, could be more offended by the suppositions being made by conspiracy theorists in a complex crime scene, more offended by those suppositions than the clear evidence of deception that the government undertook to look the other way. Evidence that was right under every reporter's nose from the very outset of the publication of the Warren Report, had they really cared to look. Unfortunately, it represented a news culture at the time that was terribly invested in the idea that the government did nothing wrong here, and that conspiracy theorists were simply nuts, and that they were helping to tear the country apart. And they should be dealt with swiftly and expeditiously. An element of questioning about our most sacred institutions that was not needed after a fragile state of the country's existence that came with the tumults of the late 60s and 70s in the Vietnam War. That is the kind of visceral reaction this topic invoked then and continues to invoke now with some. I wish you could all watch this because the Washington Post representative should be given the all-time Academy Award for playing a character oozing of righteous indignation. The visual is something else. The audio by itself does not do the scene justice. You have to watch this cat. Seriously, it's right out of a bad B movie. In almost the same sentence, he first dismisses the idea of a conspiracy and then goes on to say that he doesn't know too much about the case. At the same time, his delivery and expression are priceless, and they're dripping with sarcasm and righteous indignation for anything conspiratorial. And it would be more than humorous if it wasn't so tragic. This coming out of the mouth of someone from the Washington Post, truly emblematic of the lazy investigative reporting on this topic that came from some of the premier news outlets in this country. Quite a contrast from the Watergate investigation that the Post did. In most ways, it's not a top 100 video clip for me, and I have hundreds and hundreds related to the assassination. Yet, in a certain way, it really is an amazing YouTube video whose purpose today in our discussion is to summarize for me and for you the journalistic culture of that moment. The moment right after Oliver Stone's movie came onto the scene, sporting the story of the Garrison investigation. And it came along with the audience participation at the end. That was a microcosm of national debate at that moment. And the audience at American University that day was angry, too. Angry that the government of their country was possibly lying to them. Angry that the press was lazy and subservient to the government and let the government get away with publishing the Warren Commission report. And then angry again in a different way voicing that conspiracy theorists were making claims and perhaps making them without backing things up. They wanted answers. Hell, they wanted proof. That was understandable. 
even if it wasn't hardly possible at that moment, yet. Now for some good news on the panel. Surprisingly, in some ways, the most balanced voice on the panel that day was the NPR film critic, who reminded us that the true value of the Oliver Stone film was to challenge the existing narrative rather than to serve as the definitive factual rendition of what exactly happened and why. To this day, she remains the most enlightened in the room at that moment. The whole video is too long and too ancillary to include here in our analysis, but it serves as a very important point as to how the press was conflicted on the matter. And for lots of reasons, the press simply didn't serve the American people well during this important set of events. If we are to learn anything from the studying of the Kennedy assassination, it is that the role of the press, a free press, and the role of true and high-quality investigative reporting and writing is an absolutely critical element in keeping any government or arm of government honest in their proceedings. It plays out time and again. They can hurt or help in the pursuit of justice. I've left the link to the video on my blog for this episode. I would only recommend it if you have absolutely nothing else to do in your life. And of course, if you are already caught up on all our other episodes here at the podcast. So just go to www.podcastjfk.com and click on episode 154 and you can experience it through a link that is there. Now it's time to turn to today's episode, which is actually short and sweet and ties into today's prologue that you just heard. Maybe it's just an extension of the same wander. You see, the Garrison investigation was launched secretly in December 1966 by Garrison and his team, and the news story about it broke early in the spring of 1967 when two reporters from the State's Times newspaper caught on to things. Within weeks of the story breaking, the CIA issued a memo at the direction of its then-director Richard Helms outlining its strategy and the steps it would take to control the narrative and defend the conclusions of the Warren Commission. That is, that a lone gunman was solely responsible for the murder of JFK. This was the CIA. You might think this was routinely benign, or not. I'll leave that up to you but it's entirely relevant to today's conversation because it's not clear to anyone who was working for who in the press corps at that moment on this topic. What motivations and agendas and what incentives existed to make some of the nuanced changes or interpretations that I was talking about with you and that I just described in the prologue? I think after you listen to this memo, you'll understand a little better why we took the wander we did today. So here it goes, and now I will read to you the CIA memo in its entirety. The subject of the memo is countering criticism of the Warren report. It's directed to chiefs certain stations and bases, and it's from the chief of Woview. I should know what that means, but I don't. I think it's the moniker used to identify Richard Helms. Item number one, our concern. 
from the day of President Kennedy's assassination on, there has been speculation about the responsibility for his murder. Although this was stemmed for a time by the Warren Commission report, which appeared at the end of September 1964, various writers have now had time to scan the Commission's published report and documents for new pretexts for questioning. And there has been a new wave of books and articles criticizing the Commission's findings. In most cases, the critics have speculated as to the existence of some kind of conspiracy, and often they have implied that the Commission itself was involved. Presumably, as a result of the increasing challenge to the Warren Commission report, a public opinion poll recently indicated that 46% of the American public did not think that Oswald acted alone, while more than half of those polled thought that the Commission had left some questions unresolved. Doubtless polls abroad would show similar or possibly more adverse results. This trend of opinion is a matter of concern to the U.S. government, including our organization. The members of the Warren Commission were naturally chosen for their integrity, experience, and prominence. They represented both major parties, and they and their staff were deliberately drawn from all sections of the country. Just because of the standing of the commissioners, efforts to impugn their rectitude and wisdom tend to cast doubt on the whole leadership of American society. Moreover, there seems to be an increasing tendency to hint that President Johnson himself, as the one person who might be said to have benefited, was in some way responsible for the assassination. Innuendo of such seriousness affects not only the individual's concern, but also the whole reputation of the American government. Our organization itself is directly involved. Among other facts, we contributed information to the investigation. Conspiracy theories have frequently thrown suspicions on our organization, for example, by falsely alleging that Lee Harvey Oswald worked for us. The aim of this dispatch is to provide material for countering and discrediting the claims of the conspiracy theorists so as to inhibit the circulation of such claims in other countries. Background information is supplied in a classified section and in a number of unclassified attachments. Action. We do not recommend that discussion of the assassination question be initiated where it is not already taking place. Where we see it taking place addresses are requested. We should discuss the publicity problem with liaison and friendly elite contacts, especially politicians and editors, pointing out that the Warren Commission made as thorough an investigation as humanly possible, that the charges of the critics are without serious foundation, and that further speculative discussion only plays into the hands of the opposition. Point out also that the parts of the conspiracy talk appear to be deliberately generated by communist propagandists. Urge them to use their influence to discourage unfounded and irresponsible speculation. To employ propaganda assets to 
answer, and refute the attacks of the critics. Book reviews and feature articles are particularly appropriate for this purpose. The unclassified attachments to this guidance should provide useful background material for passage to assets. Our play should point out as applicable that the critics are, one, wedded to theories adopted before the evidence was in. Two, politically interested. Three, financially interested. Four, hasty and inaccurate in their research. Or five, infatuated with their own theories. In the course of discussions of the whole phenomenon of criticism, a useful strategy may be to single out Epstein's theory for attack, using the attached Fletcher Nebel article and spectator piece for background. Although Mark Lane's book is much less convincing than Epstein's and comes off badly where contested by knowledgeable critics, it is also much more difficult to answer as a whole, as one becomes lost in a morass of unrelated details. Next, in a private or media discussion not directed at any particular writer or attacking publications which may be yet forthcoming, the following arguments could be useful. First, the idea of no significant new evidence. Indicate that no significant new evidence has emerged, which the commission did not consider. The assassination is sometimes compared, for instance, by Joaquim Jostin and Bertrand Russell with the Dreyfus case. However, unlike that case, the attacks on the Warren Commission have produced no new evidence, no new culprits have been convincingly identified, and there is no agreement amongst the critics. A better parallel, though an imperfect one, might be with the Reichstag fire of 1933, which some competent historians, Fritz Tobias, A.J.P. Taylor, D.C. Watt, now believe was set by Vanderlube on his own initiative, without acting for either the Nazis or the Communists. The Nazis tried to pin the blame on the communists, but the latter have been more successful in convincing the world that the Nazis were to blame. Next suggestion. Critics usually overvalue particular items and ignore others. They tend to place more emphasis on the recollections of individual eyewitnesses, which are less reliable and more divergent, and hence offer more handholds for criticism and less on ballistic, autopsy, and photographic evidence. A close examination of the Commission's records will usually show that the conflicting eyewitness accounts are quoted out of context, or were discarded by the Commission for good and sufficient reason. Next suggestion. Conspiracy on the large scale often suggested would be impossible to conceal in the United States especially since informants could expect to receive large royalties, etc. Note that Robert Kennedy, Attorney General at the time, and John F. Kennedy's brother would be the last man to overlook or conceal any conspiracy. And as one reviewer pointed out, Congressman Gerald R. Ford would hardly have held his tongue for the sake of the Democratic administration. And Senator Russell 
would have had every political interest in exposing any misdeeds on the part of Chief Justice Warren. A conspirator, moreover, would hardly choose a location for a shooting where so much depended on conditions beyond his control. The route, the speed of the cars, the moving target, the risk that the assassin would be discovered. A group of wealthy conspirators could have arranged much more secure conditions. Next item. Critics have often been enticed by a form of intellectual pride. They light on some theory and fall in love with it. They also scoff at the commission because it did not always answer every question with a flat decision one way or the other. Actually, the makeup of the commission and its staff was an excellent safeguard against overcommitment to any one theory. <laughs> All right. Or against the illicit transformation of probabilities into certainties. Next item. Oswald would not have been any sensible person's choice for a co-conspirator. He was a loner, mixed up, of questionable reliability, and an unknown quantity to any professional intelligence service. Next item. As to charges that the commission's report was a rush job, it emerged three months after the deadline originally set. But to the degree that the commission tried to speed up its reporting, this was largely due to the pressure of irresponsible speculation already appearing, in some cases coming from the same critics who, refusing to admit their errors, are now putting out new criticisms. Next item. Such vague accusations as that uh, more than 10 people have died mysteriously can always be explained in some more natural way. E.g., the individuals concerned have for the most part, died of natural causes. The commission staff questioned 418 witnesses. The FBI interviewed far more people, conducting 25,000 interviews and re-interviews. And in such a large group, a certain number of deaths are to be expected. When Penn Jones, one of the originators of the 10 Mysterious Deaths line, appeared on television, it emerged that two of the deaths on his list were from heart attacks one from cancer, one from a head-on collision on a bridge, and one occurred when a driver drifted into a bridge abutment. Last item. Where possible, counter speculation by encouraging reference to the commission's report itself. Open-minded foreign readers should still be impressed by the care, the thoroughness, the objectivity, and the speed with which the commission worked. Reviewers of other books might be encouraged to add to their account the idea that, checking back with the report itself, they found it far superior to the work of its critics. Now that we've read that memo to you, what do you think? Anything suspicious about it? Anything sinister in that memo? I don't know. It does make me feel uncomfortable when I read it. It surely suggests that the CIA was actively working to squash anything the critics were attempting to articulate. Possibly for the good of the order? Perhaps. I don't necessarily think it was a nefarious intention, but it might have been. That's up to you. You've just heard it. What do you think? Leave your comments on the blog for episode 154 at www.podcastjfk.com. There is one side of me that thinks in a free society with free speech, 
that even the idea of doing this, doing what they proposed in this memo, is a very dangerous thing, no matter how well-intentioned it was or not. Dan Molday, in the first clip that we saw, one of the assistants to District Attorney Jim Garrison in New Orleans is advancing a different theory, that it was a mob killing of President Kennedy, and I take it this is a theory, perhaps not in the exact words of the film, but a theory to which you subscribe. Well, although I credit Oliver Stone with, with uh, resurrecting the national debate on this issue, I am a little critical of him because he takes a premise and then he takes any shred of evidence, uh, regardless of merit, regard of, regardless of sources, and then simply uses it in the movie in order to bulk up his, his, uh, his basic premise itself. Uh, organized crime, any reasonable definition of organized crime, is that it is conspiracy crime. It is enterprise crime. And in any probe of underworld activities, there are bottom-up investigations. Our investigations concentrate, in this particular case, on specific evidence, working from the bottom up. We are clearly aware of the CIA mafia plots to assassinate Fidel Castro. We are clearly aware, and the evidence is clear, that there are wiretaps where mafia guys were th threatening to kill the President of the United States. We have interviews with Ed Parton, the key government witness against Jimmy Hoffa in his jury tampering trial in Chattanooga, that Jimmy Hoffa was planning to kill Bobby Kennedy in September of 1962. And that in that same month, we have interviews with Eddie Becker, who, who was talking to Carlos Marcello, who said, we are not going to kill Bobby Kennedy as Hoffa wants to do. We're going to kill the President of the United States. We have interviews with Jose Aleman, who was talking to Santos Traficani in that same month in September of 1962, after, after, when Traficani said that the President is going to be hit and that Hoffa had made the contract on the President's life. We know that Lee Harvey Oswald was raised by a guy by the name of Charlie Dutz Maratz, who was running Carlos Marcello, the mafia boss of New Orleans, bookmaking operations. We know that David Ferry was a personal associate and aide to Carlos Marcello, who was in court with him at the moment of the President's assassination. We know we have Jack Ruby's telephone records, which show calls to and from Ruby from a variety of associates of Jimmy Hoffa, Carlos Marcello, and Santos Traficani during the days and weeks prior to the murder. We know that Jim Garrison's probe was a deflection away from Marcello and the mob because of Garrison's own complicity with Marcello in New Orleans. We know that during the Bry Lab investigations, there are three sealed tapes, which the New York Times reported today in which Carlos Marcello made veiled admissions that he was directly involved and responsible for the President's murder. Now, last week, we have Frank Regano, the attorney for both Jimmy Hoffa and Santos Traficani, who has flat out said that it was Jimmy Hoffa, Santos Traficani, and Carlos Marcello who arranged and executed the assassination of the President of the United States, and that he wishes to testify under oath before the appropriate Congressional Committee in order to get the truth out after all of these years. What we are suggesting is let's get Regano before a committee, let's get him deposed, let's get what his story is, and let the evidence go wherever it goes. Oliver Stone speaks in theories and premises. The people who are advocating that organized crime should be the principal target of this investigation are speaking from facts and specific, credible evidence.
Thank you for listening to episode 154 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.